Today's Differing Things asks a difficult question such as, How do you respond when God gives you something you don't want? How would you describe your feelings when God brings people, circumstances, and situations into your life that are at best inconvenient and at worst irritating, exasperating, and perhaps even life-threatening? How do you respond on those occasions when you reflect on what you don't have but wish you did, or when you think about what you do have but wish you didn't? This edition of Differing Things will give the biblical answer to these questions. Now for our host, Bill Petrie. How do you respond? When God gives you something you do not want, how would you describe your feelings when God brings people, circumstances, and situations into your life that are at best inconvenient and at worst irritating, exasperating, and perhaps even life-threatening? It is easy to feel grateful and appreciative and to give thanks to God when life is going well and all is easy. But how do you respond on those occasions when you reflect on what you do not have, but wish you did? Or when you think about what you do have, but wish you didn't? Let me be even more specific. We are only a few years separated from COVID-19 lockdowns. How many of us paused this past Thanksgiving, Christmas, or New Year and thanked God for suffering the effects of COVID-19 on our life? Did you think it fitting that you should express your appreciation for hardships, setbacks, trials, and afflictions? Or did you express your gratitude for a life largely free of opposition and persecution? According to Paul, who was writing under the infallible influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one of God's most precious gifts to you and me as his children is suffering. Listen again to Philippians 1 verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In case you had not thought much about it, doing a podcast like this is not the most effective way to build a massive listening audience. But since I have no dreams of building one, I'm going to stick with what the Apostle Paul says. Now, we need to think for a second about the enemies of the church in Philippi. Evidently, the enemies of the gospel in Philippi had become hostile, perhaps even physically abusive, going so far as to threaten the lives of the believers in that community. Being in prison, Paul obviously could not do much to help them and is clearly concerned that the opposition they are facing may divide 
and conquer. In other words, he's fearful that in the face of the enemy, these believers might fragment and weaken in their unity and end up failing to live in a way that is fitting for those who profess the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he exhorts them to stand fast and to stand united, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He is especially concerned that they not be frightened or intimidated by their opponents. There is only one exhortation in these verses that comes to expression in three different but related ways. The command or exhortation is found in verse 27, where the Apostle Paul tells them, and us, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word translated manner of life is incredibly instructive and important for us. This is not the normal word Paul uses for living the Christian life. That would be either peripateo, to walk, such as in Ephesians 1 and Galatians 5.16, or zeo, to live. Here, he uses a word found nowhere else in his writings. Politio, from which we get our word politics and polity. It is used in one other place by Luke in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. The word meant to live is a citizen of a free state, to take an active part in the affairs of state. But why use it here? The reason is tied to the Philippians themselves. They were very, very proud of their status as a Roman colony. They were a patriotic people who celebrated their civic identity. Here, Paul is appealing to their patriotic loyalty to their native land. He is saying, Think about your feelings for the city of Philippi and the loyalty you feel toward Rome. Now, with that image in mind, remember that you are actually citizens of a heavenly city state. In Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, but our citizenship, and here he uses palatiemo, the noun form that is related to the verb palatio in Philippians 1, verse 27. So, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All this is to say that Paul's emphasis is on how Christians must live on earth as loyal and patriotic citizens of heaven. If I may apply this to you and me today, the point is that we must conduct ourselves in conformity to the principles of the celestials of which we are citizens. We are governed first, 
and foremost by its government and its values, not those of any earthly city or state. To sum up, we give expression to your heavenly citizenship as Christians with the same, if not greater, zeal, loyalty, and devotion that you do to your earthly citizenship as Americans, Canadians, Brits, or whatever country you reside in, or in the case of the Philippians, as Romans. In saying that our conduct in this regard is to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul does not mean we should live in such a way that we hope to become or make ourselves worthy of Christ. No, we are to live in a manner that is fitting for the citizens of a celestial realm. We are to live in a manner appropriate to those who have been called out of darkness and granted a place in the kingdom of Christ. Or again, the gospel of Jesus Christ deserves our full allegiance. It calls for a standard of life above the norm. It is the gospel's worth, not ours, that Paul has in mind. Live in the light of its glory and its greatness. The way this manner of life comes to expression is then unpacked in three ways. First, the first of these three things that Paul wants you and I to see among the Philippians is that they are to stand fast in one spirit. We see this in verse 27 of Philippians 1. This verb, stand fast, conveys the notion of unflinching courage and steadfastness as if we were soldiers who refused to yield so much as an inch of ground to the enemy. Although the word spirit in most translations is not capitalized, <clears throat> I believe Paul is indeed referring to the Holy Spirit. Because they have believed the gospel and are now one body in Christ, it is the spirit in whom they stand and fight and struggle to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. He is appealing to their common experience of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of the strength you need to stand firm and not back down in cowardice and compromise. As much as it might appear to others that we are just a bunch of individuals who share, share very little in common, we are in fact profoundly united and intimately interconnected by virtue of the one and only Spirit of God who indwells us and in whom we stand. The second thing Paul wants us to see both them and us, again, is found in Philippians 1.27, stated this way, with one mind striving, 
side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word faith here does not refer to our personal subjective belief, but rather to the objective biblical and theological truths that we find in the Apostle Paul's writings. He alone writes and records how we as members of the body of Christ are to live and function in this present dispensation of the grace of God. The gospel committed to Paul serves to identify and articulate for all to see and hear what we believe the faith of the gospel to be. Satan would love nothing more than to empty this church, which is Christ's body, of its influence and its example in the world by by dividing us up into warring factions over things not found in the Apostle Paul's writings. We are to make whatever sacrifices necessary in the power of the Spirit in which we stand to make certain that this never occurs. The third and final way that our lives are to reflect the worth of the gospel is to be certain that we are in nothing terrified by your adversaries, according to verse 28. Although we are always to be humble, there is also a certain bravado or confidence in our manner such that we refuse to be intimidated by our enemies, no matter how they may threaten us or even persecute and oppress us. The steadfastness of Christians in standing firm in one spirit and our unity of mind in contending for the one gospel of truth and our courage in refusing to be fearful of their opposition all serve as a sign. On the one hand, it is a sign to them that they will ultimately lose. They may win a battle here and there, but when Christians bravely stand together in unity for the sake of the truth, this sends a clear and unmistakable message to the non-Christian world. It loudly declares, you are going to lose and we are going to win. Paul may be suggesting that God works secretly on the minds of non-Christians, bringing conviction to them that such behavior on their part can only bring destruction and condemnation. On the other hand, he likewise enables them and us to recognize in our strength and unity and endurance the saving presence of God. Of course, even if they do not realize it, the way Christians stand firm in the face of their enemies signals their judgment and our salvation. And do you do not you dare 
let yourself skip over that marvelous phrase at the end of verse 28. And that of God. And what is of God? Primarily the salvation he just mentioned. But it would also include everything that has gone before. Our living a life worthy of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit. Striving for unity in our affirmation of the truth. And not living in fear of the enemy. It is all from God. And that's a tall order. Seriously. Living worthily of the gospel in a city where people hate Jesus, standing firm and maintaining a unified front without fear of what they might do to us. Like I said, that is a tall order. How can we pull it off? And what does Paul even base this exhortation? The answer is found. In verses 29 and 30, is seen in that important little word, for. I am just going to come right out and say it as bluntly as the Apostle Paul does. Suffering is as much God's Ionian and gracious purpose for your life as is your salvation. To think of salvation as a divine gift is no struggle. But to speak of suffering in the same way strikes most people is just this side of insanity. Let Paul make his point to you and me with the particular word he chose to employ. It is given in verse 29. Most of you know that the Greek word for grace is charis. It's not uncommon for Christians to name their daughter Carissa. Even our English term charismatic comes from the Greek for grace and refers to our belief as a church of different gifts that God graciously bestowed at some point in the past. Well, the verb form of charis is caridizemo, and it means to graciously give or to bestow as an expression of favor and love. In Luke 7.21, Jesus is said to have graciously granted sight to the blind. In Luke chapter 7, verse 42, he graciously forgives sin. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul spoke of God's freely or graciously giving us all things necessary for salvation. In each case, it is this same Greek verb. Think about the nature of a gift. It is typically something you are glad to receive. It is an expression of the giver's love for you. It is undeserved. You pay what you owe, but you give what no one can claim. 
And when you receive a gift, you should and ought to give thanks to the one who cared enough for you to make the sacrifice and give the gift. Here, the Apostle Paul declares that suffering is a gift of God's grace. It is not portrayed as divine punishment for all your failures. Neither is it discipline designed to strengthen you out and alert you to the unrepentant sin in your life. This is no chance happening that unluckily came your way when God was preoccupied with other matters. This was no reluctant concession on God's part as he wanted to prevent it for some reason, but couldn't. No, it is a privilege. It is a gift. It is an expression of undeserved kindness. Paul's point then is that as many as have received the gift of faith and believe in Jesus for Eonian life, those individuals have also received the gift of suffering that Jesus might be glorified in their life. Can this really be true? Are we positive? Paul did not blurt this out following some sort of brain freeze or minor stroke? Well, let us look elsewhere in the New Testament to see if we find anything similar. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 states, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We then read in Acts 14.22, according to both Paul and Barnabas, it is, and I'm quoting, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul prays that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this, he states in 1 Thessalonians 3.3. There it is. Suffering, persecution, tribulations, all of which have the potential either for good or bad. Suffering can unite and bond families, or it can rip them to shreds. Suffering can create confident, dependent trust in God, or it will sow the seeds of bitterness and anger and resentment. You know the old saying, the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. Trials and hardships and opposition from the non-Christian world will harden some like brittle clay. Baking in bitterness and in anger.
the same trials, the same afflictions, melt others, teaching them patience and endurance and building character. Please do not misunderstand what I am saying to you or what Paul is saying. We are to give thanks for suffering, not because God wants us to take pleasure in pain, not because God wants us to pretend that evil is good, and certainly not because there is an inherent or intrinsic value in hardship and trials. There is no virtue or joy in affliction or adversity considered in and of themselves. God wants us to give thanks not because of what suffering is, but because of what suffering does. Not because of what afflictions are, but what by God's grace we become because of them. God graciously grants suffering, not because he takes sadistic glee in seeing his children hurt, but because he knows that it not only brings them into greater conformity to Jesus Christ, but also and primarily because it is the most effective way to magnify and glorify himself. Let me try to make sense of this by mentioning the three primary reasons why God orchestrates life in such a way that his children suffer persecution and trials and opposition from the enemies of the faith. First, give thanks for suffering because of what it accomplishes for you personally. I even mind what it accomplishes for your faith and for your future. For your faith. Romans 5 verses 3 through 5 state, not only that, but we, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For your future... We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Because of this, we do not faint. But if indeed our outward man is being decayed, yet the inward is being renewed day by day. For the lightness of our present affliction works out for us an eonian weight of glory, surpassing by surpassing. Because we do not look for things that can be seen, but for things that cannot be seen. For things that can be seen are temporary, but things that cannot be seen are eonian. Romans 8.18 states, For I reckon that the sufferings of the present era are not comparable with the glory which is being unveiled in us. Second, give thanks for suffering because of what it accomplishes for others. First, it equips you 
to encourage them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5 through 5 tells us, Blessed is God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the compassionate Father and God of all comfort, who is consoling us in our every affliction, to enable us to be consoling those in every affliction, through the consolation with which we ourselves are being consoled by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. I can tell you from the experience of my own life that I have been deeply consoled by the compassionate Father and God of all comfort. I have experienced terminal illness and physical ailments where I shouldn't be alive. I have had heartache where I have lost two sons. And I can tell you that God comforts us. The words of scripture come alive to bring comfort and the peace which indeed does pass all understanding that keeps our hearts and minds. But the second thing suffering does is it equips us to evangelize to those who aren't believers or believers who are very weak in the faith. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not from us. We are pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed, yet not to despair, being persecuted, but not being forsaken, being thrown down, but not having been destroyed, always carrying in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we, alive though we are, are continually surrendering ourselves to death for the sake of Jesus, so that in this mortal life of ours, it may also be clearly shown that Jesus lives. <coughs> and third, and by far and away, the most important reason of all Give thanks for suffering because of what it accomplishes for the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I want you to look closely again at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. And after you look at it, did you notice how Paul boldly declares that our suffering is on behalf of Christ, and then again on behalf 
How can that possibly be true? What benefit could come to the name and fame of Jesus Christ because his people bear up patiently under persecution? First, for his glory. Paul writes to Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, For brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant as to our affliction having happened to us in Asia, that we were excessively burdened beyond our power, so as for us even to despair of living. But we ourselves have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust on ourselves, but on God, the one raising the dead, who rescued us from so great a death and is rescuing, in whom we have expectation that he will continue rescuing as well. You also laboring together for us in prayer that the gracious gift by many persons be the cause of thanksgiving through many for us. And second, for his greatness. And by the superabundance of the unveilings that I am not made arrogant, therefore a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of the adversary that, we, that he might buffet me, so that I am not made arrogant. For this thing, I implored the Lord three times that it might lead me. And he said to me, my favor, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in frailty. As a result, I will rather gladly boast in my frailties that the power of Christ may overshadow me. Because of this, I am pleased in frailties in insults, in dire needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for the sake of Christ. For when I may be frail, then I am powerful, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. All our sufferings, all our trials, all our discomfort, all the pain inflicted by the unbelieving world, whether it be emotional, physical, or financial, is transformed by God to magnify the beauty of Christ's all-sufficient grace. What then is the takeaway for you and me? Some of you suffer more than others for your faith. Cut off from family cut off from inheritance, cut off from co-workers, crucial information withheld, your efforts undermined, your name slandered, a client lost, a promotion lost, a job lost, a friend lost, and for our brothers and sisters in Christ, in other countries, perhaps even a life lost. God would have us remember two things. First, never forget the absolute necessity of Christian unity, of standing firm in one in the same Holy Spirit, striving together with one mind in the same 
gospel of truth, Philippians 1.27 tells us. When you stand alone, it is easy to be intimidated and frightened. If ever a case was to be made for spiritual community in the local assembly, it is here. We need one another when persecution approaches. We need one another when opposition intensifies. We need one another when we are in frailties to be built up, to be consoled and comforted. Two, never forget the reason why God has called us to suffer. It is for Christ's sake, according to verse 29, for his glory, for the praise of his name, so that others will watch and marvel at the majesty and sufficiency of his beauty and grace. I want to close with a quote by Bible teacher John Piper in his book, Desiring God. He writes on page 287, listen closely, and I quote, we do not choose suffering simply because we are told to, but because the one who tells us to describe it as the path to everlasting joy. He beckons us into the obedience of suffering, not to demonstrate the strength of our devotion to duty or to reveal the vigor of our moral resolve or to prove the heights of our tolerance for pain, but rather to manifest in childlike faith, the infinite preciousness of his all-satisfying promises, end of quote, in light of all I have said today, will you join me together with the Apostle Paul and the Philippian church and give thanks for the gift? of suffering. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.